Blog Talk Radio. Shepard, and I welcome you to the show today. We have a lot to talk about. Um, we're going to be talking most of the show about beer, which you might think doesn't apply to you if you're not a beer drinker or if you're not someone who um, enjoys the taste of beer. But we are speaking of it in a broader term, and I think it will be really relevant to anyone living gluten-free to hear about the recent research that's come out um, and about the state of gluten-free labeling with regard to beer and some other things. So I hope you um, you know, have your pen and pencil ready to take down some notes because it's really going to be an interesting show. I've gotten tons of questions submitted already, and um, I will be trying to get them in as much as we can during the time we have today. I want to first talk about a little bit about beer and its history, why it's even an issue for people who are gluten-free, and then we'll get right in with our guests today. Um, beer is the most, the world's um, most widely consumed alcoholic drink, and it's actually the third most popular drink around the world behind water, of course, and tea. So it is a really relevant topic for a lot of people, but you know, if you aren't a real big beer drinker, you may not know that gluten it has been integral in the production of beer since time immemorial. Barley, in particular, has been the primary brewing grain um, of choice, dating back at least to 3400 BC. It's pretty pretty far back there. Um, there have been even rules and laws um, regulating the use and production of beer requiring that barley be used. And in fact, in the United States, a malt beverage has been defined for regulatory purposes as being made from barley, water, and hops um, with or without some other ingredients for flavoring. So celiacs and those others avoiding gluten-containing grains like barley have for a very long time not been able to enjoy beer. But in the past, um, I don't know, dozen years or so, breweries have gotten into the business of brewing beers, at least here in North America, um, for the gluten-free community. free grains. And the other category is something called gluten reduced or gluten um, low gluten or crafted to remove gluten beers. Um, and those are in fact made from barley and in some cases some other gluten containing grains. At this point, that type of beer is not allowed to be labeled as gluten free, although local state laws may differ if they're not crossing state lines. In Europe, this is a completely different scenario and we're hopefully going to touch on that a little bit as well. The distinction is important, though, because these gluten-reduced beers, um, they remain under the regulatory umbrella of the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau, not the FDA. And most of the foods that we talk about um, and most of the regulations we talk about as, as gluten-free consumers are regulated by the FDA. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy there, although the TTB does try to follow in the FDA's footsteps. So at this point, if you were to go to a store and pick up a beer, 
what does that look like? How do you know as a gluten-free consumer whether or not it's naturally gluten-free versus gluten-reduced, gluten-removed? And there's a little bit of um, confusion there because a lot of people don't understand the difference, and in some cases they're not labeled appropriately. So I want to get into that today because there there are kind of two camps around that um, gluten-reduced beer group, and some people swear by it and say it's great and I don't get sick and so we need to make sure that it's still available. And other people say, no, I have tried it and I've gotten very, very, very sick from drinking a so-called gluten-reduced or gluten-removed beer. But up until now, that's kind of been it. People can say, Yes, it makes me sick, or no, it doesn't make me sick. We haven't had any science to really rely upon, and that's why this um, is so exciting that there is now a pilot study that has been conducted um, between the gluten intolerance group and also the University of Chicago's Celiac Research Center. And I'm thrilled to have on the show today two people who were instrumental in that study to discuss the study, to talk about why it was needed, and to talk about where we go from here. Um, I welcome Cynthia Cupper, first of all, the CEO of the Gluten Intolerance Group, and she's also a fellow celiac and registered dietitian. Um, Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us again here on the show. You're welcome. And also Laura Allred, who is a Ph.D. and works for um, the Gluten Intolerance Group, GIG, as the Regulatory and Standards Manager. Thank you for taking time, Laura, to join us as well. I'm sure we'll have lots of questions for you. Sure, I'm ready. Well, so let's get started. First of all, we've now like covered the reason why barley um, and beer are even an issue for people with celiac disease or people who are gluten sensitive. Before this study was released, though, um, as... Um, GIG as the, the group, the gluten intolerance group, and also you all represent the gluten free certification organization. Um, this is kind of an odd situation because you had people in the gluten free community on both sides of the issue. And so, is that sort of what prompted you to go down this path of seeking some additional research? Well, the the reason we went down this line of research is, as you've mentioned, the sort of a broader topic here of generally fermented and hydrolyzed products. And for now, they can't be labeled gluten-free because the test methods that are available can't accurately detect uh, the fragments that are left. So we kind of took beer as a test case to see if the um, antibody, antibodies in active celiac patients could be used to detect residual gluten fragments. Um, so really beer was just sort of a, a proof of concept of something that we'd like to be able to apply for other fermented and hydrolyzed products. Right. Well, Laura, backing up a second, um, you know, we throw around the terms fermented and hydrolyzed all the time, uh, those of us who work with, um, you know, in doing gluten-free food labeling and regulations. But for the average consumer, you know, you may have heard beer is fermented, but what would be something else that would be fermented or hydrolyzed in, you know, in our, our foods or beverages that this would also apply to? Sure. Um, yeah, the two terms, uh, you know, hydrolyzed is, is a process that typically humans initiate using either enzymes or chemicals to break down proteins, starches, you know, there's different things you want to break down in a hydrolysis. Fermentation is when you let uh, yeast, typically, I mean, other, other bacteria can do it, but you usually have yeast uh, do fermentation for, for beer and things like that. So, 
Another area, a common area where you see a fermented product is in soy sauce, which is another thing that is often, you know, people go back and forth on whether or not it's safe, whether there's not, whether there's residual gluten left. Um, hydrolyzed products, see, a lot of things are partially hydrolyzed. It's rare that something has every protein in it broken down to its component amino acids. Uh, but a lot of processes like uh, protein isolates, starches, will undergo some level of hydrolysis, either enzymatic or chemical. Okay, so you mentioned soy sauce. Is the study that you did um, on beer, taking that as just an example, would you then be able to extrapolate from that then and say, well, because we found certain um, findings at the end of the study with regard to beer, we would extrapolate that the same type of response would be elicited with something like soy sauce? Um, it would actually be really hard to extrapolate because the fermentation processes are different. They go for different amounts of time. Um, the the yeast are conditioned. You know, the ones that they use for beer have been conditioned to barley for hundreds of years. The ones that they use for soy sauce are more conditioned towards soy and wheat, so they may do a different job of breaking down those proteins. So it's really going to have to be very empirical as we move mm -hmm into different food types. But certainly mm -hmm. this method would then be applied to mm -hmm. something like soy sauce and anything else. Okay. So right now in um, in your testing, Cynthia, for GFCO, for Gluten-Free Certification Organization, when you go out to a manufacturer of, let's just say, um, I don't know, uh, crackers, and you're certifying whether or not these crackers are gluten-free, what test are you using to make a certification of the gluten-free status of crackers? So the test methods that we allow as part of our program are methods that a third-party agency like the AOAC have validated as being effective for the testing that is being done. So they would be all validated tests, but it may differ depending upon the product that is being tested. So as Laura indicated, maybe these test methods, the ELISA test methods and the lateral flow tests that are available currently to test gluten are not effective and should not be used on a product like beer, where they might work they might work well on a cracker, but a chocolate is a different scenario. So we don't identify one test method that companies have to use but we do specify that they have to be an AOAC-validated test. Okay. And is there such a validated test, then, for hydrolyzed or fermented foods and beverages? There aren't any, which is why we don't yeah. certify anything that falls into that category. We do certify some soy sauces, but there are soy sauces that don't contain. So it's tamari that doesn't start with a wheat product because we wouldn't allow mm -hmm. one that starts with wheat ingredients to be certified and um, there are there is a, a test out there now that's a competitive ELISA uses the R5 antibody that is better for fermented and hydrolyzed foods but there are issues with that one getting accurate numbers getting accurate quantitation with it so you know so we don't go into that arena at all and really neither does the FDA I'm sure you know about the recent FDA proposed ruling on fermented and hydrolyzed, they're also just trying to stay away from it and, and make sure they're not labeled gluten-free. 
Yeah, the FDA, um, for those listeners who aren't familiar with, you know, when you go to the store and you buy something that's labeled um, gluten-free, that falls under the Food Allergy Labeling Consumer Protection Act. And um, the guidance documents for the FDA actually note, and I'll quote, um, FDA is aware that sandwich ELISA methods, that's what Cynthia was referring to earlier, um, which is the currently available testing, do not adequately detect gluten in fermented and hydrolyzed foods. Because scientifically valid methods currently are lacking that can do so, we intend to issue a proposed rule in this issue. But it, of course, has not happened yet. So where we're sitting is in this sort of awkward no man's land where when you're dealing with fermented and hydrolyzed foods, the I, my understanding is that the scientists who have looked into this have said that the current testing is not adequate, so we need to find a better testing method um, or figure out, um, you know, a, another way to determine whether or not these um, these products are actually gluten free. However, we are now finding that there are. Um, these beers, for example, that are labeling um, themselves as gluten-reduced or gluten-removed, that those beers are claiming that they are gluten-free to less than 20 parts per million because they're relying on these ELISA methods. And that's where it gets really tricky for consumers. And I think um, that's where the study that you all spearheaded is so um, foundational because we have people saying, but, you know, this beer company is saying that their beer is gluten-free because it's been tested. And then you have the scientists saying, but the tests don't work. And that gets really confusing. <laughs> and unfortunately, the FDA and TTB have not gone further. So that leaves us in the consumer realm, and GIG has been always at the forefront of this, um, has, is taking this, you know, to the scientists directly on behalf of consumers to try to figure out what's really the case. And that's what this study is, is all about. So let's talk about the study. Now we know why we needed it. Um, how did this get started? Who, um, you know, how did the groups come together? Because I know it was, just, it was you um, as well as the University of Chicago. Um, and how long has this taken? When did it, it happen? And, you know, sort of talk about how that all, that process actually came to be. Uh, well, G&G has had a, a long relationship with the University of Chicago Celiac Disease Center. Uh, so when we thought to do a study to look at the, the celiac patient response to, to a hydrolyzed for, or fermented product, they seemed like a, a logical group of people to go to. And they were very receptive to letting us come out there and, and work with them to get this done. Um, we did the actual work uh, almost a year ago um, in their labs there at the university. Um, and, and really, it was uh, the, the paper, the, this study sort of built off a previous paper out of uh, Peter Green's lab um, where they showed that over time, the, the antibody response of active celiac patients starts to spread not only to different gluten proteins, but in some cases to non-gluten proteins. And we don't yet know if there's any clinical implication to that, but it, it sort of gave us the idea that, you know, you have test kits that typically have what's called a monoclonal antibody. So it's a single type of antibody 
It recognizes one very specific protein fragment. But in a SIDAC patient, they're going to have antibodies to a lot of different gluten protein fragments. And if you wanted to see if there were any residual proteins in a fermented product that might provoke the antibody response, that seemed like the best way to go, to go to the actual serum of the active celiac patient and see if they were detecting any of those residual proteins. Um, the results that we got actually go a little bit to what you were saying in the introduction. You've got some people who say, I drink those beers all the time and I'm fine, and some people say, I drink them and I get horribly sick because, you know, of the people that we saw that were barley reactive, not all of them had an antibody response to the, the proteins from that gluten-removed beer. So it may be a case-by-case basis, uh, and, and that's something, you know, as we get more serum samples hopefully down the road and can broaden this study to other products, we can see what kind of variability there is between different patients. That's that's really interesting, um, and and I note I noticed that when I was reading over the study that you did in fact have um, confirmed celiac patients their serum um, where they did not react, but there were others that did, and so as a as a celiac, um, you know making a decision about whether or not to try a beer that may or may not make them sick is something that, um, you know, that everyone will have to make that decision for themselves. But um, going back to what you had said earlier in, in, in response to that, that question, I'm wondering if it's a, if I'm phrasing it correctly, because you're obviously very scientific and you're speaking on another level, and I want to make sure that um, everyone sort of understands in layman's terms, but, um, is the is it a, the case where a person could perhaps react to um, the well, actually backing up the enzyme that is treating these barley-based beers breaks apart the gluten protein? Is that correct? Yes, and okay. for most of the gluten-removed beer manufacturers, they use a a very specific enzyme that, that breaks at a specific amino acid. They're usually proline-targeting enzymes because, you know, as people know, the, the proteins in gluten that are typically most toxic or that have been identified as being most toxic have a lot of proline amino acids in them. Okay. So um, this this enzyme that they are treating the beers with sort of breaks that apart. So is the question whether or not a person with celiac disease, whether their body will still see the pieces and have a reaction to it because the pieces are still there, or whether or not because it's broken apart, it no longer perceives it as the threat of this toxin that you know the, that the body misperceives in the autoimmune reaction. Yeah, so... Um when you think about amino acids and the gluten protein that we all talk about, you can think of it as a chain. And in the gluten protein, there are certain amino acids, there are certain chain links that are in a specific order, and that's what makes up gluten. The thought is if you cleave or break that chain at certain places, that reaction, those few amino acids that are still stuck together do not cause a reaction, but we don't have that information really soundly identified that that's true. So we're right. seeing okay. in this study 
Yeah, that some people definitely do react to these smaller chain mm-hmm. pieces than mm-hmm. the entire gluten chain. And did you dive into mass spectrometry as an alternative to the ELISA method at all when you were doing this study? Uh, that is definitely an option, and, and that's something that will certainly be coming down the road because that is the other alternative, probably the best alternative out there for difficult foods to test. I mean, there are other than fermented and hydrolyzed, there are other issues in, in food testing that the antibody-based tests aren't the best at. Um, you do still with uh, with LTMS run into some issues that they're going to still be looking at a limited number of protein fragments. They can do many more than an antibody-based test. Like I said, most of the antibody-based tests are, are looking at one specific fragment. And for most of the kits out there, that includes a proline, which is why a lot of these beers uh, companies are using enzymes that target proline, make sure, make sure tests come out negative. Um, but, yeah, definitely LCMS down the road. Uh, but even then, they have to pick a, a set of amino acid fragments that they're looking for. Again, they can do a lot more. They could look for 10 different fragments from wheat and 10 from barley and 10 from rye. So it certainly increases their chance of finding it. But part of what's good about the, the method we used in the SPEAR study is you're really seeing what patients are reacting to. And human beings can do an amazingly wide array of antibodies to proteins. So there's still a chance that this kind of methodology would pick up something that mass spec wouldn't. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you say that <clears throat> that basically what's currently being used um, for testing these beers as well as foods is something that's looking for one specific fragment, whereas um, you know it's possible that a combination of fragments or a different fragment might if we had a test that was suitable to pick that up, might actually detect um, a problem there that that a celiac would react to. But because they're only testing for one, if that one's not there, then they're able to, you know, in good conscience say, well, that gluten is not there. And so, you know, we're releasing this test result saying that, you know, it's been gluten removed or reduced. Um, it's an and interesting I, way of putting it. I will say, I, I don't mean it to sound as though the gluten removed beer people said, we're going to target our enzyme at the protein seen by the test kits. It wasn't anything that calculated. Um, right. Beer companies, beer companies commonly use proline-specific enzymes to reduce haze in beer. Right. And they realized that that brought down the gluten amount, so they just started using more of it to try to bring, bring the gluten down lower. So mm-hmm. it was just sort of a serendipitous discovery of a process they were already using. It wasn't really a calculated, you know, we're going to pull the test kind of thing. Right. Um, just for the listeners um, to understand, what we're talking about is this enzyme that's added. I think typically it's called Brewer's Clarax, and it had historically been used um, in beer making to get rid of that cloudiness that some people enjoy, you know, a, a beer having the, the uh, cloudiness that's more natural, but a lot of people want the clarity in the beers. And so what they had discovered accidentally or serendipitously, uh, as Lauren has, has described it, is that, oh, it made the beer clearer, but also it means that um, when we test it using this this type of, of ELISA test, that it's coming out as gluten-free, um, less than 20 parts per million. But the larger issue is 
people are still getting sick. So why is that? Well, the speculation is that that's because only one or only some of the gluten proteins are actually um, cleaved or broken apart in um, the amino acid chains, as Cynthia was saying. So the study that you did, um, you took blood samples from people who have celiac disease. And describe what you did. Um, You tested with obviously gluten-reduced beers, but you also tested with naturally gluten-free beers. And and describe sort of the methodology there, and then I guess go ahead and get into the results that you had found. Sure. Um, Well, I know we've we've been saying that ELISA tests aren't aren't effective uh, for detecting this, but ELISA is actually just a method. So the method we used was an ELISA-based method. we took each uh, of the beers we used, a traditional beer made from, from barley, a gluten-free beer that was made from sorghum and rice, and a gluten-removed beer, and we concentrated those down to capture any residual protein. All beer has some level of residual proteins in it. And then we coated those proteins onto a plastic surface, the little 96-well plates that you get with an ELISA, Um, and then we incubated the patient sera in those wells, Um, and if they happen to have antibodies that detected those proteins, their antibodies would bind in that well, and then you basically go back with uh, another reagent to detect their antibodies, so you wash away what didn't bind and then you go back with another reagent that detects those bound antibodies um, and produces a color response to tell you how much of that antibody is still there. Um, so, yeah, basically, colorimetrically, we could tell uh, if the patients here are bound to the residual proteins or not. And re- therefore reactive. So those residual proteins would cause a reaction that... Um, would either cause an overt reaction, a patient not feeling good, or might cause um, a reaction that was not detected as an outward symptom, but might cause increased inflammation or other symptoms of celiac disease. Yeah, and I I think it's important to note here, and Cynthia, you could um, get into this more thoroughly, but it's important to note that with a celiac they don't have to have an outward reaction to be affected by exposure to gluten. They don't have to necessarily feel sick or um, have what you would uh, describe as an overt celiac reaction in order to still be suffering um, internally the effects of an autoimmune disease being triggered. And that's why the serologies are interesting because you didn't put a bunch of people in a room and give them a beer and see if they felt sick. What you did is you actually tested their blood to see if truly they were having a reaction. Correct. And you're right. You don't have to have a physical reaction to have gluten ingestion. There are a number of people who are what we would call asymptomatic people. They simply don't have detectable reactions, but when you look at them from a physical standpoint, they might have anemia or osteoporosis or other conditions which may not cause their stomach to hurt or cause um, hives on their arms or anything like that. But it definitely is a response to gluten in their bloodstream and in their gut. 
which can lead to other problems down the road. Um, and we see this all the time in, um, in patients who say that they aren't as sensitive as other patients are to gluten exposure. Um, if you have celiac disease, you are having, you know, you are suffering from that on one way or another, perhaps setting yourself up for another autoimmune disease or somehow, um, you know, degrading the body. And so, you know, in, in a situation like this where you have some people who say, I drink this gluten-reduced beer and I feel fine, and other people say, I get sick, that brings it back to, well, we don't even know what the people who say they feel fine whether they're asymptomatic celiacs or whether they truly are not reacting, which is why it's interesting that the serology, you know, shows that there truly are some people who apparently are not reacting, but there are others who are. Well, and the important thing to remember there is that an autoimmune response, like any immune response, is an active process. So people who try a gluten-removed beer today and don't have any symptoms, if they continue to drink it on a regular basis and had celiac disease might over time develop a reaction to it. So you you might get lucky the first couple times you try something, but if there are still proteins in there that can be recognized, there's a chance your immune response is going to start gearing itself towards those. That's a very good point. Okay. I'm just taking notes because um, I think a lot of these salient points um, – can be distilled down and, and shared with people through, um, you know, a summary of the of our conversation today as well. I think it would be really helpful for them. Um, so, at the end of the result of this, where do we go from here? I know this is a pilot study, and so it, it had its limitations. What's next in terms of research? So, uh, one of the things I would like to say is the reason. One of the reasons we did this is as part of our certification program of products, it is very important to us that we can justify our decisions around either certifying or not certifying, um, considering ingredients high risk or low risk. So that was part of the impetus for doing this study. Lauren, you want to take it from there? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, this was done for not only the information for consumers, but for our own decision-making processes, as Cynthia said. Uh, the the next steps from here are, you know, for for us, a larger sample number. You know, being able to get more serum samples from celiac patients to get a better representative idea of, you know, what what kind of incidence of responses are there. You know, if you can tell somebody. You know, there's a 10% chance you're going to get sick the first time you try this, and, you know, but be careful. It may not, uh, that may not last. You may not be lucky for long. Um, and then moving into other uh, fermented and hydrolyzed foods, again, for, for us to be able to make our decisions about certification, but also to be able to give consumers information. So is it then your plan that you would like to do a larger study? Definitely. I mean, this... This study was pilot in that it was uh, sort of proof of concept of a method mm-hmm. of being mm-hmm. able to use that patient sera to to assess the safety of, of a food or a beverage. Um, so now that we've seen that that we you know we didn't you never know going in are you going to get you know a bunch of people that react to gluten free beer and then you've got data you can't really analyze. But now that we see that 
we get a clear demarcation between a negative, you know, truly non-gluten sample and, you know, a little more response to, to things that, that contain barley or, you know, apparently the same uh, kind of thing would happen if we did a wheat-based product. Um, we can we can branch out and get more information about other other foods and beverages. And a larger okay. study simply validates that yes, this wasn't a fluke in using the small sample size. So it just continues to validate the work that and the the results that we've seen. Mhm. And is this in the works already, or is this something that you're going to be moving towards later this year, or what kind of a timeline are you looking at for trying to embark upon a larger study? So for the studies that we do in food safety, they are funded by GIG at this point. We don't seek outside funding. In order to do a larger study, we would definitely need to have outside funding um, samples and things like that. So we've talked to a couple of people about the potential to expand this study, including in Europe. Um, we don't have any definitive um, direction at this point. Okay. Well, um, it's interesting that you mentioned Europe. I, there are there are I don't know maybe a handful, maybe a dozen gluten-reduced beers here in the United States that are widely available. In Europe, there are over 250 gluten-reduced beers, and they are typically labeled gluten-free in Europe, um, sometimes low-gluten, but um, they have a, a different, um, somewhat different labeling regulations than, than we do in that regard where they do have the possibility of labeling low-gluten. But it's a, it's a really different... Um, it's got a different perception in, in Europe, and so it would be interesting that if you were to expand into, into Europe and, and also do the testing over there because it's much more widely accepted in Europe, these gluten-reduced beers. Yeah, and as I mentioned, different manufacturers have slightly different processes. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a chance we might find a brand of gluten-reduced beer that, that no one appears to react to. Right. I would probably still be concerned, you know, that you might build a reaction to it over time if if you, you know, were an active celiac patient. But, you know, that's, that's a big reason to expand it, too, is to, you know, see those differences between different products. Sure. Well, what could... Um what could consumers do right now to um to help you know i guess to further the the additional study is there should they be trying to donate blood or are they trying to um would they uh give financial contributions to g i g or or what how could someone who wanted to help this study you know actually occur the larger study how would they direct their energies? Donations to GIG are definitely one of the ways to do that. Um, as I said, all of the studies that we're currently doing are essentially pilot studies. They're small studies to prove concept or to give us some validation of our decision-making. Um, but in order to expand a study, we will need research dollars that go beyond what our current budget can handle. As far as donating blood, there are blood banks that the researchers have available to them. Um, We may have to increase our payments for those samples in order to get them for food safety studies because they're also used for 
studies related to finding a cure or a pill or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, can you give the website to um, direct people to if they want to give money towards these studies or also learn more about the studies that are ongoing through GIG? Sure. Our website is www.gluten.org, and there is a donation page. You can actually, through making a donation, specify the donation to go to research or to any of our other programs that we have. Great. Okay. Well, and you had mentioned earlier, Cynthia, that this study um, in particular was the the need or the impetus for the study was driven by your desire to have a better understanding of how risky or safe the gluten-removed beer, um, uh, I don't know, category is in terms of the Gluten-Free Certification Organization, which is run through GIG, um, considering whether or not you would certify one of these beers. So in, in over the past many years, have you has GIG been approached by any of these brewers? Have you um, considered or um, are, you, are you now considering whether or not you would certify any of these um, as gluten-removed beers as you know, meeting your standards under the GFCO? So I can talk in general terms, and then Laura can add her thoughts as well. Uh, we have certified beers in the past. As Laura indicated, they are naturally gluten-free beers. Uh, we have had discussions with some of these gluten-removed beers, not only from the standpoint of certification, but some of the European com- companies who want to get the gluten-free label even from just the FDA on their products and how are they going to do that. So we've, we've had discussions. At this point, though, I think based on our research, we will make a determination that we would not certify these beers. Laura? Yeah, and, and it goes to sort of the larger point we talked about earlier is, you know, anything that starts with a gluten-containing grain as a primary ingredient uh, and then is fermented and hydrolyzed, in general, we don't certify anything in that category. One of the things to keep in mind, too, Jules, is that our certification program sets a stricter standard than what the FDA does. So it's not just a matter of being able to say your ingredients are gluten-free, but to make sure that you can get to 10 parts per million or less as part of the product being certified through our program. So... At this point in time, we just can't. It for us, it is not. It's a safety issue. Right. Well, it. I mean, that makes absolute sense. If there's no scientifically accepted test that can definitively show whether or not a product is less than 10 parts per million gluten, which is the GFCO standard, I, it it's you know logical that you would not be in a position to take the step of certifying um, any of those products, be it. Um, Soy sauce, I guess, or you know, gluten reduced beer. So that that makes sense. I just was wondering if um, if anything had changed after this pilot study, if you felt any differently about it, one way or the other. I think it validated our decision to begin with, and it just reinforced that yes, we are our position is sound for us. Mm-hmm. Well. One of the questions that I got consistently when I was posting about your study, and in the past, the 
I have a, an article on my website, and it's consistently the most popular article on my website that's a non-recipe article, and it's about gluten-free um, beer, alcohol, and wine. And people ask again and again, I'm so confused because, and again, this is mostly people in the United States, I go to my local beer store, I go to the uh, a restaurant, and they hand me a menu with gluten-free beers on it, and I see gluten-reduced beers listed as gluten-free, and some of them say that they are certified. How is a gluten-free consumer supposed to know the difference, or how would they be able to pick up a beer and know whether or not it was truly um, naturally gluten-free beer or gluten-reduced beer? So I think part of the issue here is that certification programs are not alike. So it's important, and and it's another discussion you might want to have sometime, but um, when you see certification programs, it's very important that consumers understand what that program stands for, what the standards are. Um, And some allow for different standards, either parts per million or being able to say that we're going to stand behind this gluten-removed beer, that does present a huge confusion for consumers. You always have to read labels. So even if you see GFTO's certification mark, for us, it's such a stricter standard and I have confidence in it. But if you're confused, read the label. If it is an FDA uh, regulated product, such as a gluten free beer, it will have an ingredient and a nutritional label just like any other food product. But if it's a TTB regulated product, it's going to look like every other alcohol on the shelf. That's probably a good um, red flag to say um, if TTB is regulating it, it's not and they're calling it gluten-free, I might want to be cautious and not use it. And how would a consumer know the difference between a TTDB-regulated label and an FDA-regulated label? So when you see a label on, a say, a box of cereal, it has an ingredient list that lists all of the ingredients and a nutritional panel. That's Mm -hmm. an FDA-regulated product. TTB does not require a nutritional label on products. So you won't see the calories, the protein, sugars, and things like that. That's probably the easiest way. Okay. The other thing to keep in mind here is that state regulations for products trump federal regulations. So the closer you get to where the product is made, and if the laws get stricter, the strictest law applies. So in um, some states, you can label something, say, gluten-free, but when it crosses the state line, it cannot be labeled gluten-free. And I think that that is a problem right now because these gluten-removed beers are crossing state lines with a gluten-free label on it, which is really um, a truth in advertising issue for the consumer. Indeed. Um, I, I was giving a lecture recently and was researching some of these beer companies um, and what they were saying about their beers. And it's very, very difficult for gluten-free consumers at this point, which is why I really do hope that the FDA and the TTB address this soon. Um, There was one beer company that on their website 
and this is a quote, it said, extensive, like lots and lots of testing, shows that this enzyme reduces gluten content in beer to undetectable amounts, zero to five parts per million. Therefore, drink up. Like, literally, it says that on the website. And, you know, it, it's very, very confusing for consumers and, and you know, for restaurateurs and for um, beer and wine retailers to know the difference and, and you see them, you know, confused all the time in terms of where they're, you know, how they're labeled on menus and other things. And so I, I think it's really helpful, Cynthia, that you broke it out a little bit that way and said if it's an FDA-labeled um, product that it has to have the nutritional label on there and then you know whether if it says gluten-free it has to meet the definitions of less than 20 parts per million and so that also means that it has to be a naturally gluten-free beer if it's a barley-based beer it would not obviously be a naturally gluten-free beer and therefore it, it is not regulated by the FDA so it wouldn't have a nutritional label so just like anything else um, for all of you listeners, don't rely on anyone to tell you anything about a product. You need to read the label. And if there's not a lot of information on the label, then, you know, you're probably not going to be able to determine, you know, what's what's in it or what the nutritional content is, and that should tell you that it is not a naturally gluten-free beer. And, again, it's a decision everyone needs to make for themselves whether or not they, you know, are willing to to take the risk of of having something that may still contain some gluten proteins in it. And that leads me to another question that I've um, received many times, and I'm not sure if your study would have spoken to this or not, but perhaps you can address it um, in in the way that you handle these questions, I'm sure, from people who, who've reached out to you as well on the same issue. This study was directed at um, people who have celiac disease. And so the serology, the blood work that you were testing was of people with, with diagnosed celiac disease. What about people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity? How, how should they approach this, um, this decision about gluten-reduced versus naturally gluten-free beer? Has there been any study on how this could affect them, or is there anything you can extrapolate from the pilot study that you've done? So part of the challenge we have is that from a standpoint of genetics, um, it's really still hard to define what gluten sensitivity is. We know what a person with celiac disease is. We know that they will have a certain um, HLA type or genetic typing. We don't know that about people with gluten sensitivities. And with gluten sensitivities, there's a lot of research going on that suggests that it may be something more than gluten or in place of gluten that's causing these reactions, but they're still the same. So without being able to have specific samples that have been clearly identified through some type of a diagnostic criteria, that these are people with gluten sensitivity versus people with celiac disease, it's impossible to create study like that. Um, yeah, without without knowing the specific etiology and and how people with the gluten sensitivity, you know, if, if their reaction is primarily antibody based, um, yeah, it would be it would be hard. But it's certainly something you could use this method to look at and see if you are seeing these kind of responses, you know, from non celiac but gluten sensitive. Okay, so it, um, I guess at this point the 
the fact that experts have to, to date not recommended um, this category of beverages for people with celiac or severe gluten sensitivity, nothing would have changed because of this study? Not at this time. I mean, it just, as, as we've said, it just confirms for us that gluten-removed beers are not safe for all people with celiac disease. And as a nutritionist or a dietitian, I'm probably, I'm going to make the recommendation that my patients or the people I work with with either gluten sensitivity or celiac disease not use these beers because we just don't have enough information um, that can say, well, yes, you will react, but you won't. And without that kind of information, it's too difficult. So the safe approach is simply not to use these. Mm -hmm. Well, and and I would point out, as uh, my article on the website does, I mean, it is extensive um, on listing so many great naturally gluten-free beers that are out there now. I mean, when I was diagnosed with celiac disease in the 90s, there were no gluten-free beers, like gluten-reduced or naturally. Um, so it just wasn't it wasn't available. But now there are so many choices, um, either imported from other countries or here microbrews or, you know, even some larger um, companies, you know, nationally distributing um, gluten, naturally gluten-free beers. So, you know, that's kind of when people ask me, you know, what would you do personally and what do you choose? There's so many wonderful um, gluten, naturally gluten-free beers out there. For me personally, I wouldn't risk my health when I have so many other choices. And and I, as a baker, like I use, you know, gluten-free beer a lot in my baking and, you know, beer bread or batters or other things like that. So it's not just for drinking. I think it's a wonderful ingredient. But I'm grateful that there are so many entrepreneurs out there and big thinkers who've come up with fantastic ways to create naturally gluten-free beers. And again, going back to our um, discussion of how do you notice those, how do you find those beers and know that those are the naturally gluten-free beers, those are the ones that are allowed to be labeled gluten-free because they are not made with gluten and they will have a nutritional label on them. So um, some of them are also certified, right? Um, by how, do you know how many you've certified, uh, Cynthia, through the GFCO of the naturally gluten-free beers? Um, five or six? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of the exact number, Jules, but all the ones that we certify are naturally gluten-free. Um, so it's about five or six right now. And is there a place on the gluten.org website where someone could go and find a listing of the products that are certified by GFCO, like these beers? So on the, yeah, on the website there is access to a catalog um, on GFCO certified products. That catalog is currently being updated. It's a PDF file right now, and so it's a very extensive list. You can also call the office or send us an email through customer service at gluten.org, and we can get you the condensed list of, you know, here's the beers or here's the cereals or the chocolates if you want it. We can do that as well. We're also putting on the website, and I'm not sure if it went up last night or not, um, some Q&A that will ask and address some of the questions that people might have around gluten-free and gluten-removed beers. Great. Uh, that'll be very helpful, I'm sure. And um, I know that you have a webinar coming up as well on the subject. Would you like to um, give a little bit more information about that and how people can tune in? 
so, and I apologize, Jules, because I'm not directly related to the webinar. Chris um, will have some information. Our marketing director will have some information on the webinar um, here in a couple of days on the website. We will have a panel there, which will include Laura. Um, we will include um, a gluten-free manufacturer and hopefully a community, community advocate to talk about the issues that people have related to gluten and beer and how to handle those. Okay, great. And I believe it's scheduled for um, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on February 23rd. And I assume there will be more information about that on the um, the gig website. There's also in the link that was put up for this um, this broadcast, there is a link to the Gluten Intolerance Group website about the beer study, which has a link to register for that um, complimentary webinar as well. So stay tuned for more information. It's not happening any day really soon, so you don't have to worry about that. But, but I guess February 23rd, we can all look forward to having even more information about this coming up. So thank you for that. Um, I would like to just you know, ask you if there's anything, any other last words that you wanted to say. I wanted to thank you both for your time. I know you're taking time away from um, your meeting, and uh, we really, really appreciate it. I think there's a lot of people who had a lot of questions about the study, but also where do we go from here, and I think this has been very helpful. Um, are, there any, are there any other points that you wanted to make, either Laura or Cynthia, before we close? I think we've covered all the all the big ones, and you know, for us, we just hope to go forward with this and get more of this kind of concrete information that we can give people to help them make decisions. I mean, we do it partly for our own decision making, but you know, hopefully, it helps consumers as well. Right. So there Great. is a blog post that deals with this as well on our gluten.org website. Great. And in the spirit of fair disclosure, I um, my GF Jewels products are also certified through GFCO. So if that tells you anything, it tells you that um, I believe very strongly in the testing that's done through GFCO and rely upon it every single day in my personal life as well. But I thank you both for your service to our community, for everything that you do to help gluten-free consumers and gluten-free manufacturers to improve their processes and to um, raise the level and the standards of all of the, the products that we consume on a daily basis. Um, I know it's a labor of love, but we in the community really do appreciate it and appreciate the fact that you did spearhead this study and look forward to seeing what comes next. Um, all you know, the best thing we could do is get more information, and, and I do hope that you're able to fund that further study. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for letting us talk about it. Absolutely. All right, until next time, have, have a wonderful day, everyone, and thank you to our guests. And you can follow up at gluten.org, or you can also follow up at gfjewels.com for more information. Take care. <laughs>